0: two groups in this country, patriots and traitors. No middle ground.
1: Disinformation is not simply lies or falsifications. It is the art of having your enemies say what you want them to say. Who would engage
0: in espionage on Twitter? Who would be that stupid? Not me. It's very important to educate people about these techniques.
2: They have the great
1: reset, we have the great awakening.
0: Another type of active measure is the agent of influence.
1: And why shouldn't I root for Russia, which I am? You
0: know, it's very hard for journalists to accept that this has been going on.
1: What do you get your opinions from, TV?
0: This information is actually a deliberately distorted or manipulated information that is uh, leaked into the communication system of the opponent with the expectation that it would be accepted as genuine information and uh, influence either the decision-making process, for example, or to influence or manipulate public
1: opinion. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. Some
0: questions remain unanswered. What is the effect of all these active measures?
2: I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke, And I'm Jay McKenzie. Today, we're joined once again by journalist David Nywert, whose new book is called The Age of Insurrection. The book follows the rise of the so-called Patriot Movement, from the migration of neo-Nazis to the Pacific Northwest in the late 1970s, to the events of January 6th in Washington, D.C., We're honored to have him with us today. David, welcome back to Did Nothing Wrong. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me again, guys. No problem. We really appreciate it. Really excited. This is going to be great. Your new book is called The Age of Insurrection, and it draws a pretty clear line between people like Richard Butler, the former head of the Aryan Nations, and what happened on January 6th. You were a reporter in northern Idaho in the 1970s and 1980s, and you witnessed the arrival of the Aryan nations from their former base of operations in Southern California. What was the immediate effect on the area when these militants arrived?
0: Well, the first thing that actually we first noticed was that uh, there was a sharp increase in hate crimes, Uh, you know, attacks on Jewish businesses, attacks on mixed race, couples and families. And, uh, you know, ra- racist flyers being left all around. Yeah. And the criminality just got worse. And, you know, it eventually culminated in 1984 and the, the order and their uh, multi-state uh, rampage that included the assassination of a radio talk show host. Socially, it didn't seem to have a lot of an effect to the, the general public on the general public. But what we did see was, uh, over the years, uh, a very gradual uh, demographic change in the state. Northern Idaho used to be a
2: liberal half of the state,
0: and not Mm -hmm. anymore.
2: (laughs) No, definitely not. Yeah, and we've seen, it seems like, a recurrence of some of these people starting to move to northern idaho again in the last few years we've got guys mm-hmm. like vince james from red elephants the guy who yep. used to call himself millennial matt matt colligan lives in post falls now so yeah lana Lotka and her husband live there oh, too. oh right right so they're they're trying to bring it back it seems like yeah oh no
0: they're definitely following you know truth <laughs> following in the footsteps of richard butler and keith gilbert who actually lived in post falls when he was uh, rampaging around in his swastika festooned Volkswagen thing there at Post Walls <laughs> in, the, in the 80s. And Gilbert was quite a character. He was uh, he had done time in San Quentin, oh, 10 wow. years, uh, for plotting to assassinate Martin Luther King in 1966. So yeah, after he got done with his prison time, he followed Richard Butler up to northern Idaho and took up residence in Post Walls. He actually inspired Idaho's very early hate crimes law, wow. because he was he was the guy running around harassing uh, mixed-race school kids. But so, yeah, we had this collection of people up there that uh, changed things. But what actually happened was that, it, that they created this image of Idaho as a very white place
2: mm-hmm.
0: for people who lived elsewhere. So beginning in the early 90s is when we really started seeing a flood of very hard right uh, arch conservative types moving up from southern california primarily to northern idaho and places like that and um you know the i think the the guy who kind of kicked it all off was mark furman right the cop in the o j simpson case right he moved to sandpoint after <laughs> fleeing la in the wake of the simpson trial and uh, next thing we knew, like, every freaking retiring cop from Orange County was moving to somewhere in the northern Idaho.
2: Yep. Um, Cashing out of L.A. So. and selling there. There was a wonderful photo, I remember, in the spokesman review of Mark Furman. Somebody caught him at the airport and tried to interview him. And the picture is basically Mark Furman with his fist up, looking like he's about to hit the reporter. And somebody took a picture of it. And that ended yeah. up running. And it's just, yeah, says something about who the people were that were moving up at that point
0: yeah yeah and but once the trend got started it uh it really snowballed i think in the last 10 years especially it's really snowballed and this is something that had been going around actually it's it well preceded um the Aryan nation's arrival in northern idaho um the there was a guy out in michigan named robert miles who ran a neo-nazi enclave there um and uh he was the one who came up with what they called the Northwest Imperative, which was this idea that, yeah, let's get all the white supremacists and white people to move to northern Idaho and make it a, a white homeland. And uh, the legacy is still with us. Indeed.
1: I know you've talked about this before, but how a lot of people that moved there, a lot of people that you reported on and met with appeared to be Normal. They looked normal. They acted normal, but they had these really extremist beliefs. And I know that's going back to when you first took on this beat decades ago. But you also mentioned in the book uh, about people that are, I guess, fearing for expressing themselves politically. In, in especially rural parts of the country, that hey, if you have a Biden flag or sign, um, and people feel like they're they're under threat, and in many cases they are receiving threats, has the landscape changed that much? Are they just past the point? Are some of these extremists past the point of hiding it because there's there's no point anymore, or are they more aggressive? What what do you think has led to that? I think it's the latter.
0: Well, th- I mean, so obviously they no longer feel the need to be discreet about it. Yeah, I I think that this is the outcome of authoritarianism and authoritarian personalities at play. Authoritarian aggression is one of the three main traits, the main behavioral clusters. Um, You know, there's authoritarian submission, which is submission to to the glorious leader. Then there's authoritarian aggression, which is directed against anyone who fails to submit. And then uh conventionalism, this belief that they represent the real America sort of thing. And uh those three behavioral clusters produce a whole series of traits, you know, including openness to bigotry, if not outright participation, and an eagerness to embrace conspiracism and also a, <laughs> a belief that, yeah, that they're much more popular than they actually are. And so the aggression part is really a key thing, and it's being really inflamed right now. The the aggression against liberalism, against you know uh, any anything that basically is failure to submit, uh, is really intense right now, and it's really focused on the LGBTQ community currently. Uh, the whole groomer rhetoric thing and. Uh, uh, the attacks on drag queen story hours and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, and it tells you a lot that neo-Nazis, unrepentant neo-Nazis are the ones showing up to protest these things now.
2: Yeah, the LGBTQ community has definitely been the focal point of much of the eliminationist rhetoric that's coming out of the far right right now. And like you said, they're being labeled as groomers and targeted for abuse, harassment, and in a lot of cases now, physical attacks. And you mentioned this in the book, but the language used by people like Ron DeSantis' rapid response director, Christina Pushaw, to characterize LGBTQ people, tends to echo QAnon rhetoric about saving the children. And how much of this do you think is an intentional choice that can be waved away when somebody decides to point out the resemblance? Well, the problem is that it's hard to, to substantiate
0: that there's actually a connection there because honestly, they live in this big uh, amorphous universe, this alternative universe of conspiracism and disinformation and they bleed over into each other a lot. And so, yeah. Um, I mean, there are a fair number of, I think, people I would call uh, constitutionalists, uh, patriot types, who don't necessarily buy don't buy into much of the uh, QAnon stuff, especially the mm. um, the adrenochrome right. <laughs> theories and things <laughs> like that. But I would say a, ma- a large majority of them are are simpatico with them, uh, with with QAnon. But on the other hand, their focus isn't on and they aren't necessarily motivated by the conspiracism in the way that, you know, QAnon, serious QAnon believers are. Uh, they're mo- more motivated by para- paramilitary organizing. And, but the conspiracism undergirds their organizing and is part of their belief system. I mean, it, yeah, so someone like Christina Poushaw, she operates in this uh, realm of uh, extreme right I, I I call it Ascendant a Global Right-Wing take, Takeover, you know. the um, Right. The, and she's, you know, I mean, she's part of that whole European disinformation, far-right organizing environment, including, you know, Orban in Hungary. And so it really becomes hard to sort of parse it out because they're all actually interconnected in ways that are, That they support each other, it it becomes part of the the water they
2: swim in, so or swamp if you were. Somebody referred to it as the Fox News cinematic universe, and I think that you know that's a like (laughs) little past that now at this point. But I don't think that's the worst way to think about it. Might be Infowars cinematic universe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, these are all part right. of it. Yeah.
1: Might be a bigger influence from Infowars. Yeah, but you'll see the same attacks starting at at Fox News and trickling on down to you know Patriot Front and uh, the attacks on the LGBTQ community are a central part of their propaganda and the and the information they put off out there. So it's they uh, they both rely on each other. Right. And uh, where it starts and where it ends, who knows? But it is interesting to see just how prevalent this is and I, I guess it it makes us wonder how much these attacks on the trans community in particular are helping white nationalists recruit new members is this kind of something that's similar to what we saw in the 90s with white supremacists using you know immigration as a as a gateway issue to get people drawn into the movement
0: yeah very much i mean let's be clear all of these all of these recruitment techniques, uh, you know, in the 90s, uh, gun control was the big issue. And then in the 2000s, it turned to immigration. Uh, and um, and then since then, we've had, let's see, Antifa, critical race theory, and I mean, the, all of these concocted enemies, right? Oh. Right. And yeah, I mean, part of the authoritarian right personality, uh, the mindset is that that they have to have enemies. They have to create enemies because they all want to be heroes. I mean, these guys all sit around and watch superhero movies and and, and action movies that all are built on the hero mythos. And heroes can't exist without enemies. They have to have an enemy. So that's what they often said about doing is creating enemies for the sake of making themselves heroic and you'll never find i mean even these guys the guys who go to uh, malls and and shoot up dozens of people see themselves as heroic not to mention the the guys uh, you know marching in patriot front uniforms and stuff like that they're all creating a hero mythos for themselves for the action movie of their mi- of their right. lives and their minds you know
2: so Speaking a little bit about the hero dynamic, you've written a lot in this book and others about the incident in Boundary County, Idaho, at an area that later became known as Ruby Ridge, between Randy Weaver, who was a frequent visitor to the Aryan Nations compound, and the FBI that led to the deaths of Weaver's wife and son. This incident seems in a lot of ways to have been the flashpoint for what became known as this patriot movement that you talk about. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. the seed for a number of these groups that formed in the aftermath. And like you said, many of these people refer to themselves as patriots. But as you explain in the book, it's got a very different meaning for them. Can you elaborate a little bit on the difference between what we might normally think of as patriotism and what these people are all about? Sure. Well, I mean, their
0: adoption of the term Patriot, to this, uh, to name their movement, you know, which happened in the 90s, actually came out of the original formulation Uh, was Christian Patriots. Right. And these were actually, that was the term of art for people who went to Aryan Congresses. Uh, these, and, and as I mentioned in the book, you know, you, these people seem fairly normal. They look like my neighbors that I grew up with. And they... Until you talk to them for a while, uh, you know, get into Mm -hmm. their beliefs, they seem reasonably normal, you know. I mean, they're very, very conservative, but, you know, it's not until you start digging in that you find out that they're actually profoundly racist and bigoted. But for the most part, um, you know, they fit into um, sort of the rural environment very well and very easily because they, you know, they look and talk and sound like most of us until you, you really get to know yeah. them, um, and so yeah. Uh, by the '90s, uh, when they started calling themselves the Patriot Movement and organizing militias, that whole strategy evolved from the Aryan Nations of a guy named Louis Beam, who came up with this idea of leaderless resistance uh, as a way of of fighting the. Uh, Fighting the, back against the federal government, and the um, you know this was actually inspired by the arrests of the Order, uh, the the Aryan gang that I was mentioning, who killed the radio talk show host in '84. In the wake of that particular rampage, uh, the federal government charged a bunch of white supremacists around the country who got money from the Order from these bank robberies charged them with sedition in Fort Smith, Arkansas. The uh, prosecution failed. They were all uh, acquitted. And uh, But in the aftermath of that, the, uh, some of the leaders of the Aryan Nations and others, uh, particularly this guy named Lewis Beam, decided to take this other strategy, and it involved two components. One was to form at small action cells, small local action cells that had no direct attachment to the larger movement or the leadership of the larger movement and but those action cells would carry out the sort of paramilitary and terrorist acts that um, that they envisioned as well as uh, and then he also articulated a lone wolf strategy uh, in which individuals would go out who also had no attachment to the movement or the organization or the leadership and those we've definitely seen both of those strategies unfold in the ensuing years and the patriot movement was basically a reflection of that first strategy of forming small militia cells and that's why you know they became known as the militia movement popularly but they called themselves the patriot movement and they call themselves patriots in the same way that they call themselves constitutionalists they they take basically sort of very much an arch nationalist approach to everything and completely pervert and basically rub out all the democratic components uh that's certainly what the constitutionalists argue you know they they're the folks who do this reading of the constitution such that it, it actually you know the they claim that the government uh, shouldn't uh, be shouldn't own federal land, shouldn't be running education, uh has no business doing anything other than running a military basically yep, and they've been arguing, you know, this actually grew out of the old very racist uh, comitatus movement that was where the a lot of these ideas originated, but they got filtered out and watered down they took the ra- overtly racist and anti-Semitic elements got erased in the 90s in the course of the militia movement bubbling up because a lot of the purpose of the militia movement was to um, mainstream these far-right ideas in a way that was you know sort of smuggling them into the mainstream discourse and um didn't really take off until uh 2008 2009 with the rise of the tea party movement right uh, which is when we saw really saw patriot movement ideas uh, being shuttled into the mainstream
1: yeah you made a, an interesting point which i thought was really important I, I think you were talking about the constitutional sheriffs but you you mentioned that they are not anti-government they are just anti-democratic and I, and i thought that was yeah just a if you want to expand on that that'd be great but it's it's just such a good a good point and a good thing to remember that they they want to win they want their form of government yeah. not yours
0: yeah they're fundamentally autocratic or authoritarian autocrats yeah and they have no use for democracy and that that's pretty clear but yeah um i mean this was obvious when um, I used to, when I worked for the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, I would, they'd fly me out there once a year and I'd sit around and talk with my colleagues and I was always arguing that, you know, our standard term for the Patriot Militia Movement was, you know, they were an anti-government movement. And I, over the years, I just grew increasingly uncomfortable with that partly because uh, it became clear to me that these folks actually want a government. They just don't want a liberal democracy. So what they fundamentally are is an anti-democratic movement. And you know what? Most of them, you know, and of course they also object to being called anti-government for exactly that reason. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not against government. I'm just against this government. Right. (laughs) Right. And that became really clear when, they started talking about, um you know, <laughs> electing Donald Trump. <laughs> but also the hostility to democracy was also always latent because, I mean, it was, I think, best expressed by the adage that they often throw at you, that this this is not a democracy, it's a republic. It's a constitutional <laughs> republic, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is utter rubbish. Uh, and that... Aphorism actually originated with the John Birch Society back in the early 1960s. Um, it certainly has no basis in, the, in constitutional history or American history. So, um, But that's, you know, and, that, and I think that reveals their hostility to democratic principles and institutions.
1: We even see it with somebody who's fairly mainstream and Charlie Kirk of TPUSA going out there and saying he's opposed to democracy. And, and of course he gets very upset if he, no, no, no. I just, I just like a, uh, yes, we're a republic, but a pure democracy is bad. And I, I know you've mentioned this before. It's just a way to continually assault and degrade our institutions, but it is, it is very mainstream now. It is very common on the right.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Particularly if you go out to rural areas, oh, you know, yeah.
1: it's, it's,
0: uh, it's considered conventional wisdom out there.
2: You look at a guy like former representative Matt Shea in Spokane and yeah. this guy's not really running to be a representative in the current system. He wants to be like the warlord of whatever comes next. That's, I think that guy's goal is to be the warlord of the redoubt or however he's looking at this right now. Yeah. Definitely see what you're saying about out in the more rural parts of, you know, I live in Washington State. You don't have to get that far out of town to see people that have that sort of ethic and that sort of idea about where this should go next.
0: Yeah, just go to Monroe or Lyndon, you will <laughs> find them all over. Oh yes. And yeah, and of course in eastern Washington it's it's even worse, which is where Shay lives. Um yeah, I saw Matt um uh, a couple of years ago at the Red Pill speaking at the Red Pill Festival there in Montana. Uh, promoting COVID conspiracism and, and uh, yeah, doing his thing. It was kind of interesting. The The last time I wrote about him actually was um, last summer at the Pride in the Park event in Coeur d'Alene. um A bunch of uh, it, it, folks may remember that that event was targeted by a group of neo-Nazis from the group uh, Patriot Front who showed up with 31 of them in a U-Haul van planning to, to march into the park, but the uh police caught them en route into town and uh, arrested all 31 of them. Uh, among those, and, and at the same time uh, that that was happening, there was also a, a counter event happening just down the block being organized by Christian nationalists, uh, some of whom were closely affiliated with Shea and Shea himself was there. Um, but and was and spoke at the you know the anti-gay anti-LGBTQ event, but um, and actually he led a march uh, down the street towards the Pride Park, Pride in the Park event, and then they turned around. But it later turned out that two of the Patriot Front members who were arrested that day were actually the sons of Shea's right-hand man there in Spokane at his church, right. Um, I remember and this. Shea promptly turned around and threw them under the bus. <laughs> and, well, he's no longer part of my inner circle, and the, the boys were never members of the church. And
2: of course. You know, they
0: run as far as and fast as they can from this stuff.
2: Still think it's amazing that Matt Shea used to be a regular on InfoWars back in two thousand eight and two thousand nine. Yeah. That just woo. <laughs> it's a little scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: I mean, no, that's that's their world. I mean, honestly, uh, Alex Jones has probably done more damage to our information sphere and our public discourse than than even Fox News, mainly because he's polluted it so profoundly. Uh, but Fox News' uh, pollution is, is a more insidious kind because it uh, uh, spreads so easily. And it, it's so mainstream-seeming. I mean, among folks on the far right, Anything that's on Fox News, no matter how utterly, how utter rubbish it is, is considered conventional wisdom pretty much uh, by these folks.
2: Well, speaking of conventional wisdom, they recently let a guy go by the name of Tucker Carlson over there at Fox News. And, you know, nobody's really sad about that over here. But he was (laughs) one of the strongest pushers of what these people call the great replacement theory. Yeah. Tucker really, really hammered that and telling people that the global elites are plotting to replace white populations demographically and culturally with non-white people. And this is an old trope, obviously, that the white nationalist movement have been pushing for years, but it's gained a lot of traction in the last decade of what passes for the mainstream of the Republican Party. So can you talk a little more about what they mean when they say great replacement?
0: The term great replacement comes from french book published in 2012 that had the same title the great replacement and it was basically this argument that the you know the hoary uh belief in you know the jewish conspiracy jewish cabal uh that secretly runs the world is engaged in an effort to import as many non-white immigrants into at that time he was describing mostly europe in the great original book but, of course, it got adopted ardently by American white nationalists who said the same thing about, you know, non-white immigration into the United States. Uh, that basically the plot is to displace and replace uh, white voters, you know, white citizens with uh, brown people who will be more compliant, compliant, right? Right. As if that were the case. Um, <laughs> can't fault him for trying. At any rate, they uh, have been selling this, you know, theory, and yeah, and and, you know, Tucker did it in an interesting way. He made it out to be a purely political thing that this was something that Democrats were were plotting to do, as a way to get more Democratic voters and replace Republican voters, conservatives voters, with these non-white immigrants who would vote for them. Of course, he you know contingent on that whole theory is the fact that it basically takes about 12 years at least for an mm-hmm. immigrant to become to gain citizenship status in the u.s so i mean that that's a pretty
2: long-term strategy <laughs> you know <laughs> it's the long game definitely the long game
1: well and a lot of latinos actually switched to trump in 2020 so the the, the idea that it's a guaranteed new voter block, they, oh, they won't let Trump build his wall because they got to get new voters. Well, the the data really isn't bearing that out, but you're right. It was a, as a convenient smokescreen for him. Well,
0: and that's the thing is that when Democrats do this stuff, as well as pushing for, you know, more voting by younger people and that sort of thing, they understand perfectly well that a lot of these voters, they push for expanding, you know, the voting base because they think it's more democratic. And of course, they think they'll probably benefit by doing that. But there's, they understand automatically that there's no guarantee that these new voters that they're going to be getting out to the polls are necessarily going to be punching the ticket for them. But Republicans have such an authoritarian view of the world that they don't see things that way. They assume automatically that this is all kind of, you know, work against them and and work in favor of the the Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) The demon rats, demon rats. (laughs) It is really tied to that conspiracism, though, because the with the great replacement and what Tucker has put out there, I know I've I've seen the memes, the white nationalist neo-Nazi memes of of the percentage of white population, you know, by year, by decade. And they really instilled the, the fear in, in their voting block that you have to do something now. And unfortunately, we see that with mass shooters who feel compelled to act because, well, if we don't do something about the declining white birth rates now, well, then it's just going to be too late. And it, it's it's scary and it's terrible, but it, it has been a motivating factor for multiple mass shooters.
0: Yeah, sure. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, (laughs) and then you see it creeping up in Elon Musk's feed,
2: you know, and it's like, I think we're in trouble
0: here, folks.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did talk about Tucker and, you know, his recent job change, as it were, and we don't know exactly (laughs) why he got fired still. We've got some reasons, but we don't know exactly why. And we do know that he like you said in the book is one of the primary sources of eliminationist and white nationalist rhetoric. And if you watch these guys talk, like you know, I've got clips of Vince James and guys like that, talking about how Tucker can say the things they're not allowed to say, you yeah. know, Tucker can somehow get yeah. this in front of more people.
0: Yeah. Fuentes says that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of, a lot of white nationalists. and Andrew Anglin. <laughs> yeah. Just loves uh, Tucker Carlson. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: So he's not on cable anymore. They're going to have to switch over to Twitter to watch this guy if they yeah. want to. And what impact do you think that's going to have on their movement, having Tucker completely off mainstream TV, as it were?
0: You know, honestly, I think that this is one of those cases where deplatforming uh, actually works. <laughs> I have <it's> kind of <laughs> a much smaller audience. I mean, that was the problem with, with having him on Fox News is that it was just a fire hose of disinformation and bigotry. And uh, at least we've slowed it to just a regular hose, you know, or at least it will be. And I don't think, uh, but so I I think that uh, he's going to have trouble uh, certainly getting back that audience, you know, what was he getting, like 13 million a night, something like that. He was the number uh, one rated
2: news show on TV.
1: And now you know it's bad when he, I think the first night he put a show out, he had to send an email out to explain to people how to get to his video on Twitter. <laughs> <And> how many <laughs> people actually are going to do that, understand it, if, if with the older audience especially? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. And when you make it harder, some people just don't go to the trouble.
0: Well, and it's not like actually Tucker... Uh, won that audience by virtue of his sparkling personality. Uh, he won it by virtue of being on Fox News in prime time, and he won it by saying, uh, spreading the kind of propaganda and disinformation that his audience actually expected of him. I mean, this is one of the things we've certainly learned since January 6th, is that um, in a lot of ways, the sort of the authoritarian tendencies of the Fox audience and the right-wing audience uh, is actually steering the discourse as much as the people at the top are now. They're really, in many ways, no longer in control. Yeah, Trump tried to tr- uh, trot out, you know, his uh, defense of the vaccines, and he ran into so much resistance, he just had to abandon it. Because he realized that uh, this was not popular with his base, that his base had been subsumed by the anti-vax theories, and so he better just shut shut up. And you know, I mean, think about the Fox made a brief stab around the elections of 2020 at return to credibility by uh, calling Arizona for Biden, um, which brought down the hordes of angry. Trumpus on the heads of the network and a lot of people got forced out and so by by early January after the insurrection a lot of those uh fox heads uh fox corporate heads were gone uh, the, the people who had made the call in Arizona because they realized that they that basically the the audience was controlling their message as much as anything and yeah so They've created this beast, and they barely know how to ride it. Definitely,
1: yeah. Unfortunately, all the 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 memes about how great the vaccine was and how great a job Trump was doing it just it did not make for great content. And unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of this movement it just it rolls on. It is conspiratorial, of course. They ended up saying, "Oh, the vaccine is bad," but I think also part of it is people turn on it because. Hey, this this isn't a good show. My audience doesn't want me to say the government did a good job, which is concerning.
0: The, the spread of extremism and the growth of extremism, and the it's sort of the the extremist extreme parts of extremism, are in many ways. I, I was I was thinking about Glenn Beck back in two thousand nine and two thousand ten. Ah. There's this zone of the media that believes that the you know your audience size is everything, and that that. Anything goes in terms of attracting the audience. And the number one route to attract that audience is to say crazy shit that that is going (laughs) to make everybody go nuts. So that was certainly a a shtick that Glenn Beck perfected. It was also, I mean, before that, Rush Limbaugh had perfected it. And, you know, the whole idea, the ethos of constantly pushing the envelope means that you inevitably have to start adopting ideas from the white supremacist movement and from the real extremes of the right. Right. And that's exactly what's happened.
1: Yeah. I I know you've, you've mentioned that before that at least 60s, 70s, maybe into the eighties that the Republican party made a point of not taking common cause with neo-Nazis and the Klan and these groups, because they knew these, these are the bad guys and they're not for us either. And that line is now, Gone. gone
0: yeah gone absolutely gone yeah that understanding has vanished yeah as i mentioned gilbert uh, keith gilbert the neo-nazi who had the volkswagen thing in in post falls he you know he was responsible for the the uh for idaho passing it one of the first hate crimes laws back in 1982 because he was uh he not only was threatening these mixed-race families in coeur d'alene and post falls But when the Kootenai County prosecutor came up with, you know, this idea of the malicious harassment law that eventually became law and legislators promoted it in the legislature, Gilbert, it was looking like it was going to fail because the Republican, their conservative Republicans weren't eager to jump on board. And then Gilbert made a threat, a public threat. All of that, any Republican legislator who voted for this law was going to be facing his wrath, and it turned into this, uh, you know, (laughs) tide of votes in favor of the law. Uh, So,
2: thank you, Keith. (laughs) Good service rendered. They've always been so amazingly like foresightful and tactical. I mean, I grew up Republican and
0: I was from Idaho and and what's happened to the Republican Party since uh, I was a kid has just been appalling.
1: I I understand that as someone in deep red Tennessee and my grandfather listened to Rush Limbaugh every day every time he was in the car took me anywhere rushes on you go in the house fox news is on they would mute it sometimes but they didn't they didn't even turn it off i mean it was just on all day and yeah i i know for me i really wanted to believe that republicans would come back from the brink i i live around republicans everyone in my family is a republican i thought you know and they then they said well Trump is eh I don't love him but he's just kind of an outlier he's just it's we're just having a moment it'll get better sanity will return and then the opposite has happened which it it's it's hard to not get down and and depressed by that but you have to kind of take that energy and put it somewhere more positive because the threat is still out there, and it's growing. And this book really encapsulates all of it, mm-hmm. which is why it's 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 such a valuable resource. And and we just we enjoyed it so much. So I just I'm I'm so glad that we got to talk to you about this. I I actually did notice that you went on the the Lincoln Project though, and you talked about wanting to write a book about how we get out of this. What are our next steps to to move forward, and are you feeling, uh, it's been, I guess, a couple months since you said that. Are you still feeling like that's possible? And, and like you have an outline in your head of what the next steps are? Are you still working through that?
0: Oh, I'm still working through it. I mean, no, I don't have an outline. I, actually, I, I, I think I'm going to write a book about humpback whales next. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> While well, yeah. well, well, I muse, contemplate how we get out of this, because it is intractable. I mean, just what you mentioned. Um, we all have family and friends uh, who've all gone down these rabbit holes, who've all been captured by this authoritarian movement and are, you know, I mean, it, it, I keep telling people that authoritarianism is a hell of a drug.
2: Mm-hmm. If,
0: if People get addicted to it. Uh, It's just like, you know, you got to have your TV on all the time on these authoritarian channels and you have to be having this stuff being fed in over your radio all the time um, as well. You know, I mean, just every component of their lives gets consumed by these authoritarian beliefs. Um, And yeah, I mean, the, the Republican Party. I still believe that you know there's a valuable place in our political discourse and for our political um, healthy body politic for a genuinely conservative politics. Which are this what's happened to the right now is not conservative, rather the opposite. It's it's extremism. It's radicalism. Right. Uh, it's the opposite of conservatism. You know, it's become a travesty of conservatism. And how do we how do we repair that? How do we pull people out of these rabbit holes? How do we draw people back? And ultimately, uh, you know, you know, I've experienced. You know, I've gone through all the various different iterations or parts of my career. I've certainly seen how fruitless it is to try to pretend to them away and hope that things just get better. Because uh, that ain't going to happen, folks. <laughs> you know, right. These are people who are trying to destroy our democracy and you better fight for it or else it's, we're going to lose it. And that ultimately is, I think, where we have to draw the line that we, you know, the, 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 instead of trying to play nice, you know, be like uh, Dick Durbin in Illinois, where you're constantly accommodating these guys. I think that the, the Democrats need to learn how to play hardball. I think they need to get some spine and and show that they are ready, not only ready and eager and willing, but you know, capable of defending democracy. And you know, I, I thought they actually the twenty two uh, results were pretty uh, promising that way because what we saw in that election was that voters supported people who campaigned on saving democracy. Yeah, and I think we need to lean into that. Really hard. I think we need to be like I say, I think we need to play hardball. I think we need to quit playing dilly dally games and assuming that that the other side is is operating in good faith because they're not. In fact, the Republican Party has essentially established that no that they are really no longer viable partners in the power sharing agreement that we've had since the nineteen thirties. No. And because they are openly hostile to democracy. And I think we just need to uh, come to terms with that. It's not that we need to make the people who fall into these beliefs uh, our enemies. But I think it is important to understand that they're terribly mistaken, terribly misled. And, you know, there's always hope for redemption. I think people can be redeemed. And I think we should try to work towards that but first we need to defend our
2: democracy it's interesting like talking about what you said about 2022 and the candidates that talked about defending democracy having a lot of success electorally the center right conventional wisdom right before that election was that no one cared <laughs> about that you shouldn't talk yeah. that much about january 6 because that talk doesn't about resonate gas prices. <laughs> right that doesn't resonate with us and it was very fascinating to watch that all get completely repudiated at the ballot box when that came up, like, gee, nice. Nice of you to try and help us. Nice of you to really try and you know yeah. give us some good advice there.
1: Well they said the same thing about abortion rights and again, yeah, that's that's not what the polls said. But no. Yeah. The centrist wisdom is uh is kinda going out the window. And I I am heartened that the left liberals are are starting to see this. Do you see the the shift in awareness of of people more, you know, traditionally in the center that are at least acknowledging the threat.
0: Yeah, I, I think when you have David Fromm and David Brooks acknowledging the threat, it's a step forward. Although they're still, they still want a ambi bandy band right. response, uh, even though they recognize the threat. <laughs> I mean, honestly, this is that's the way it's been inside the Beltway for decades. That they create this bubble around themselves, and they have real, really no. Clear sense of what people out in the rest of the country really think and feel, and what the sensibility really is. And not only that, I mean, one of the aspects of that is that that sort of centrism, that that hand wringing centrism, is also a lot of the reason that liberal democrats have a reputation for fecklessness and spinelessness, which is one of the reasons, yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons conservatives hate them. And one of the things that they make fun of them for is for their spinelessness and fecklessness. And then they turn around and actually, yeah, well, yes, we are feckless and spineless, but, <laughs>
2: but <laughs> said, we want to have everything better. <laughs> and you're just not going to get there with one side like that. You're just not. It's yeah, not, no,
0: okay. no, it's totally asymmetrical. And it's, you know, they believe that that symmetry that existed for many years is still intact and I'm here to tell you, it ain't <laughs> no. Yeah. It's been asymmetrical for at least twenty years.
1: Well, and they're they're convinced. I think a lot of people in DC are are convinced that these ideas. These, Christian nationalism and QAnon and the anti-vax stuff. Oh, it's still fringe. It's, it's always been there. It's always been a problem. This is no different than it, than it's been for decades. Uh, but your perspective is so great because you, you do speak to people in rural areas and you do talk to these people. You know what they believe. I think you would uh, readily dispute that characterization.
0: Well, mostly it's just that the, honestly, the the numbers of participants in, in these movements has just swollen to levels we've never seen. I mean, yeah, yeah. This stuff has actually been around for a long time and mostly existed on the fringe, but it's no longer on the fringe. It has gotten into the mainstream and, uh, the numbers of people that are uh, participating, that are, you know, showing up to listen to uh, Vincent James Fox talk on his YouTube show, to tune in to Nicholas Fuentes and his America First show, and uh, and all the others. It's just, there is really large audiences that we're seeing, and also significant participation in online chats and uh, on Twitter and other social media. It's not a fringe movement anymore. And that's the point is that, no, this stuff's been mainstreamed and it's been mainstreamed by a lot of different forces that are actually eager to tear down and hollow out our democratic institutions.
2: One thing that you also mention a lot in your book is that this thing has gone kinetic in local areas around the country that, a lot of school boards have been targeted by these people. And you do mention that a lot of it's being done through almost an AstroTurf type of campaign. They bring Mm -hmm. in people from outside the district to disrupt school board meetings. They don't necessarily have kids in school, but it doesn't matter because they're there and they're loud and they're intimidating and we're seeing school board members in a lot of places just quit because they don't want to have to deal with the potential Mm -hmm. for violence, the potential for doxing. Nobody really wants to be the target of this campaign. That's not what you signed up for. But these people, of course, don't have a personal stake in what's going on. So for them, it's show up and harass people. Can you explain why they're taking this approach and what kind of success they're having with this?
0: You know, This uh, approach actually evolved immediately after January 6th uh, when – um it, it mostly kind of a lot of it came out of the proud boys who realized that you know they weren't going to be able to uh enjoy that uh sort of mega relationship that they had with Trump anymore and that their future strategy their the future for them lay in building up local chapters and having those uh, those chapters be very active but it really it came down to yeah the the idea that that the way forward after january 6th involved be, becoming much more diffuse and uh spreading out into local entities and you know attacking as you say school boards but also library boards and mm-hmm. librarians uh attacking uh health boards and health districts and then city councils and county county commissions County planning commissions, that sort of thing, as well as ultimately state legislatures as well, and basically, uh, sort of, let's go diffuse and and let's gain ground. We we can gain ground by uh, focusing on local recruitment, building up our organization sort of from the ground up, and spreading over and taking over these local entities. I mean, um, not far from where we live is the town of Squim, which. Uh, Briefly, it was taken over by a QAnon city council, and it was uh, you know it was it was creating all kinds of dysfunction in this is a coastal town not far from Port Angeles, is full of
2: retirees. Beautiful place, beautiful place.
0: Yeah, and on the on the Olympic Peninsula, interestingly, and it was in addition to showing us you know the problem. Uh, of how this, how, basically how this localized strategy is going to look going forward. It also, the ultimate outcome of that situation also points us to, I think, um, you know, the, the direction that I think works, which is directly confronting them, uh, uh, playing hardball, leaning into uh, defending democracy, because what happened was local residents organized their own slate of candidates to replace these guys, and they voted them out in the next election. And, um, I mean, that's how you win. Ultimately, it comes down to having an an awareness that your community is under attack, having an awareness that these forces are aligned against it. And so, in a lot of ways, that's the purpose of this book, is to, to try to help people understand the nature of the forces that are arrayed against our democracy, as well as what their strategies and tactics are. So we can recognize them and stand up to blunt them. But ultimately, I'm also trying to make the case that that that's how we defend democracy is that we actually just do the work of democracy itself and stand up and defend it.
1: I think it's Something that you, you pointed to a lot in the book and, and that resonated with me is the need that the right has for fear. It is totally understandable for all of us to be concerned. If you're a school board member, if you're just someone who wants to go grocery shopping and the, the thought in the back of your mind about a shooter is, is there, I don't think that's crazy. I think that's it's entirely understandable in this climate. But we you and you mentioned this and and we see this, that it's OK to feel a fear. It's reasonable to be concerned and to be wrestling with this. But you also have to understand that these people need you to be afraid and they are working very hard to instill fear in us, which is something that we have to. Again, be aware of, but not let us, let it paralyze us, not let it prevent us from, from taking action because it, it is, it is easy to just feel, throw our hands up in the air and think, well, I just, you know, I just won't go anywhere. I just won't do anything. But more and more people are standing up and realizing that while the threat is there, together we can fight back. We are not powerless. We are not helpless. And, and I just, I hope that everyone listening keeps that in mind when they read your book, when they hear us, when they think about this, there is hope. And we have to remember that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, part of this is just the way I'm personally wired. When someone tries to make me fearful, I'm very pugnacious and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, most, I, I get into a fight response. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not someone who is uh, willingly intimidated, so. But I understand people who are, and especially people who have families and and lives that they want to protect and things like that. Uh, but uh, you know, if we don't do this, if we don't take the stand that we, I think, we need to take in the next decade to counteract this movement, this tide of authoritarianism, then I think that we will be living under an authoritarian state eventually, and then all those things that you you know, that you're afraid of will
2: actually come true. Right. Yeah. One thing that I did want to talk to you a little bit about is that you brought up the Fort Smith case in Arkansas in 1987 and that the government was unable to secure convictions for any of these guys for seditious conspiracy. Well, recently, as we saw, the government did a little better on that when they brought Mm -hmm. up the leaders of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and managed to convict quite a few of them of seditious conspiracy, including Stuart Rhodes, who just caught a very long prison term. You mentioned that after January 6th, they had a surge of people that were interested in joining the group, especially a lot of law enforcement types, but... How much of these convictions of Stuart Rhodes and the rest gonna hurt them? Do they have some leadership waiting in the wings that can go ahead and take advantage of this? I, I think Oath Keepers are probably dead as an entity. I think they're they're uh
0: they're crumbling as we speak. And I don't think that they have much traction anymore. In the Patriot movement, who's gonna replace them is the three percenters? You know, that that entity is still very much viable. They didn't catch a lot of attention. I don't think they caught Uh, You know, there are some three percenters who are also oath keepers who have been convicted, but three percent movements uh, uh, escaped a lot of scrutiny in all this. So I would guess that, you know, we're definitely going to continue to see Patriot paramilitary organizing and uh, the Patriots spreading their conspiracist worldview as well. Mostly through outfits like the Three Percenters, Proud Boys are a totally different story. They're still very much viable, mainly because they went uh, after the you know they went to this localized strategy, right? And also, I don't think that they were as contingent or dependent on their national leadership as the Oath Keepers were. Oath Keepers were pretty much Stuart Rhodes who was really central to that organization's vitality. And with him in prison, I don't think they're going to be vital at all. Whereas the Proud Boys, you know, I mean, they got Ethan Nordine and, and Joe Biggs and those guys, and Enrique Terrio, those guys are all behind bars now. But their leadership was much more diffuse and the their appeal, I think, particularly to 21st century males is actually much broader and deeper than the appeal of of mil- militiamen, you know, the right, militia yeah. concept is to.
2: I think it's a generational difference to tell you the truth. No, no, yeah. agreed, agreed, definitely. That's
1: a yeah. Men in their twenties and thirties are still looking at the proud boys, and and they have energy that matches up really well with what they're doing right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, they appeal to the the you know, toxic masculinity crowd. Uh, that's that's their whole deal.
2: Yeah. So, how's the response been to the book so far? What what kind of what kind of what are you hearing from people that well, are Well, actually,
0: the only response I've gotten so far is from, you know, folks like Library Journal and Kirkus who all <laughs> have given it a thumbs up. Library Journal says every American should read it, and I go, yeah, I agree. <laughs> 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 but <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it's the early stages. I'm sure that there will be some pushback at some point. Especially, I've got a couple chapters that are probably going to be pretty controversial. You know, the chapter in which I pretty much defend Antifa or anti-fascists as, you know, the supposed threat that they pose uh, that's been built up over the the past five years is basically a phantasm.
2: right?
1: Well, for us personally, that's something that we watched and and witnessed online as it happened as they as the right tried to make antifa a thing when it was very much like just kind of a tiny little speck on the map of of people that called themselves antifa and were out organizing in any sort of fashion and but the right needed an enemy and a lot of that astroturfing was done online. I know even early on we had, oh, yeah, uh, like with uh, Patriot Prayer and Joey Gibson's group. It, some of them were dressing up as Antifa and then fighting mm-hmm. the uh, the other white nationalists because they needed someone to go fight. And,
2: and then you and, take uh, November Fourth, yeah. twenty seventeen, when it was all supposed to be this big, you know, civil war, and they couldn't really get Antifa. The best they could do was a you know old Maoist communist group from back in the day. With Bob Avakian calling itself Refuse fascism and right, right, trying to right. get out there in the streets. Yeah, that was
0: that was what they built it out of. Those. You know, first there was the inauguration night supposed communist takeover led by refused fascism, and then, then the bi- November one where they 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 took a joke tweet where somebody said, "Yes, I can hardly wait till I could start killing uh, Christian children and their p- parents." Sort of thing. Yep. obviously a satirical take, and they took that seriously. That uh, uh and, and you know <laughs> the gateway pundit said oh antifa <laughs> planning to kill american
2: parents you know yeah, the whole super soldiers <laughs> thing
0: <laughs> but yeah it's also remember that that was really critical to the failure of the attempted coup on january 6 was the fact that they had built this phantasm out of the out of whole cloth more or less and so when they planned january 6 i mean they believed their own bullshit mm-hmm. about yeah. that stuff right So they believed that when they turned up in D.C. on January 6th, that the Antifa would be there to fight them on the steps of the Capitol, and that that would provide Trump the pretext for declaring martial law or invoking the Insurrection Act. So it actually failed because when they actually showed up on the steps, you know, Antifa wasn't even there, and all that was left was the Capitol Police, so they plowed them over instead. So that was really critical, the fact that it was a phantasm. But they, you know, I remember in the summer of 2020, and we still hear from Republicans, well, yo, burn down all these American cities and Antifa. <laughs> and, you know, right. and Antifa had nothing to do with the George Floyd protests. That was Black Lives Matter and people who were organizing against racist police enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that was who was out in the streets that summer. It wasn't Antifa folks but they, like they still have this thing in
2: their head.
1: They can't seem to separate it. I mean they the no. they blur the lines so much with Antifa and BLM and communism and all this that they it just becomes like one amorphous blob of things they hate and yeah there are <laughs> there are distinct groups out there. It's crazy, but it's actually a thing.
0: Yeah. And so the other chapter that that I think is probably going to uh could be controversial is the one where I discuss police. Right and how how we we do have a real police problem, partly because I think one you know one of the things that people who complacently believe that democracy will just defend itself is that that they're actually depending on police forces to stand as sort of the line of defense against white supremacist violence, and the behavior of police in the last ten years has told me that that's not a reliable defense. We've had way too many forces infiltrated by. Uh, right-wing extremists, and we have uh, had way too much behavior, as we saw in Seattle and Portland and and San Francisco, by the police, essentially sympathetic to the Proud Boys and the white nationalists, and letting them more or less, basically defending them against the citizens of their own cities. Right. I mean, that was the thing that bothered me about the Portland stuff, is that uh, these guys were clearly bussing in bigoted thugs, from exurban and rural areas, they'd all gather, and you know, when it was in Portland, they'd all get on the bus in Vancouver, come yep. over the bridge, and come into downtown Portland. and And they were attacking people who lived in the cities, right? These the protesters who were mostly anti-fascists later on, but not initially. Protesters who turned out to contest them were all people from Portland. And normally, I mean, certainly traditionally you heard that your police forces are actually supposed to defend the communities against these kinds of depredations right. from violent outsiders, which is what these guys were. But instead, we saw the police, who many of whom actually don't even live in the cities themselves, um, actively uh, intervening and, and assisting uh, these, these uh, violent thugs. And that was, you know, that was very concerning to me. And and I think that we need to, you know, there needs to be a wholesale cleaning house of law enforcement in America before I think our democracy is going to be secure again.
2: Yeah, we absolutely have some room to improve when it comes to policing in this country in a lot of ways. And that's definitely one of them. We should yeah. really think hard about where this is going in the future and how do we get rid of the people who want to make common cause with guys like, you know, Patriot prayer, what we saw in Portland. And Mm -hmm. this is a problem. This is definitely a problem. We saw it. You're right. In Seattle as well. It it seems like we're having such a hard time recruiting officers, anybody who actually wants to do the job that we're Mm -hmm. taking people who shouldn't necessarily be anywhere near a badge and letting them go out and do this. At which point you're going to get what you hired and it's not good.
0: Well, the line of work naturally attracts authoritarian personalities. Right. But when you combine them with these very politicized right-wing police unions mm. and put them in that environment, it just gets on steroids. Yeah. And, yeah, they they become control freaks. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really a problem you know probably more so in Portland than in Seattle but uh but it's still a problem regionally and, and really i from my observation i think it's probably true in probably every city in the country uh definitely true in new york yeah you know, they they have a real problem with authoritarian
2: cops there well david thank you so much for coming on with us this has been really enlightening i'm glad that we got a chance to sit down with you and talk about this Again, the book is called The Age of Insurrection. And like Library Journal said, every American should own a copy. We would endorse that view. Definitely. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm.
0: Or at least check it out from your library.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> it's great stuff, folks. You got to read it.
1: Yeah, it'll it'll catch you up on everything that's, that's happened in far-right extremism, at least in the last few years. It is... Uh, a great resource and we're, we're so glad that we got to do this with you
2: definitely
0: yeah i well you know my idea was that i think a lot of the uh response the the, the books that have come out afterwards have been kind of piecemeal they attack specific components of it or discuss and some of it's very good i really like andy campbell's book on the proud boys for instance um and you know tip my head in his direction but at the same time my idea was that look we need a book that lays out the whole picture yeah, gives everybody the broad spectrum as well as the history and so that was what I set out to do and it did wind up being a a long sucker but I think it's uh, hopefully it's a good beach read (laughs) this summer
2: (laughs) (laughs) definitely a good beach read thank you so much David we really appreciate your time today you have a great rest of your day okay all right, thanks for talking, guys. No problem. Again, Take again. care. Bye, 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 Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at james the word for and the letter m all one word and griza bjj g r z a b j j as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.